thank you for joining me on another episode of Untangling. Uh, you've been on this show before, and I truly appreciate you coming back on this show. So first, uh, just a refresher on who you are, uh, what you do for work, and we'll go from there. Great. So uh, Mike Collins, I founded my own firm, uh, WinCap Financial, about a year ago. We do wealth management and financial planning. Uh, in addition to that, um, I'm also a professor at Endicott College, as well as Bunker Hill Community College, where I teach people basically about what I do for work, uh, investments and helping people with that and the economics around it. And I'm also a big foodie. I have a little Instagram account dedicated to that, too. Nice. And Mike, feel free if you want anybody listening who might need financial advice. I know it's not just open to the public. You have your rules, regulation. But feel free if you want to plug in LinkedIn, how people could get in contact with you. So uh, when this airs, uh, they're able to do that. Okay, so don't feel like uh, you have to hold back in regards to. Great. Thank you. All right. So just to get started, the last time we spoke, it was a different world. Stock market was roaring. No one could make any mistakes in regards to investing in meme stocks to blue chip stocks and crypto included. And now you fast forward to today. Clearly, there's been a lot of leading up to this point where the market is not the same as we last spoke. So just like to get your thoughts in regards to where the market is compared to where it was and just your thoughts in regards to what a difference the last episode made compared to where we are today. Yeah, well, we're in the complete opposite environment, right? Last year was all euphoria, and this year it's all fear, right? Markets are down, depending on the day you check, between 20 to 25% since the start of the year. Cryptos, uh, along with you know high-growth stocks that didn't produce any earnings, can be down as much or more than 70%. Look at Peloton, for example, right? You know, I'd have to check at how high that was trading, but I feel like it was close to 100, if not more. And, you know, Now it's $7 a share. And yeah, uh, in October of 21, it was trading at 93. So with, with what's happening right now, does it make you take a stronger stance on what you do for a living in regards to the expertise you have to have to be able to trade stocks compared to people saying, you know what, I could simply just do this on my own on a weekend day, pick stocks, because it seemed like nobody needed a person like you until what recently happened in the market happened. So what are your thoughts in regards to that? Yeah, well, the, the current market environment, environment makes it difficult for you know current clients. But if you do a good job and stick to the plan and you have their confidence, then that business is probably fairly stable. And then on the other side, you're, you're sure right, increases the demand for advice in a, in a large way. I, I try not to think of myself as a trader. When we buy an asset, we try to have at least a one-year view on that asset. One, you know, we want to make sure we can minimize capital gains for our clients. Number two, we're not trying to make a quick trade on some one-off event. We want to have kind of like a more positive long-term thesis. Now, I will say that nothing I say today is a buy recommendation uh, from me to you. Please do your own due diligence. But one name we've owned for, you know, a number of years uh, is J-Bill. They're an outsourced uh, contract manufacturer for electronics based in St. Petersburg, Florida. And let's say you and I invent a heart defibrillator or a pair of headphones. You know, We won't build our own factory, outsource it, and have someone else do it. And if you have a company that's doing that in the U.S. instead of overseas in China, 
no, that's probably more of a long-term secular theme. So trying to think about things like that are long-term secular trends as opposed to quick move. Sorry for the long answer. No, that's a great answer. And uh, J. Bill is a name I've personally never heard of. That's clearly why with a financial advisor, you'll know a lot more about organizations that just doesn't come to the public eye when it comes to investing. It seems like uh, when it comes to investing, it's simply the show CNBC. What are they talking about? What looks good? You have Reddit. You have different platforms where people could kind of brainstorm back and forth. So a lot of it is guessing when in actuality, uh, there is a science to it. But with that, what about the investors who did the right thing? Like, for example, investing in a Facebook, now they call themselves Meta, and that's down well over 30 to 40%. Another uh, company you alluded to, Peloton, that's down. Another one is Teladoc. Uh, Teladoc, I want to say, was trading at a high of well over $200. Uh, last I checked, it was in the $20 to $40 range. What about the people who did the right thing and they're still in the same predicament as everyone else who didn't know what they were doing? Yeah. So, I mean, interesting in Teladoc and Peloton. If you looked at the stock charts for Peloton and uh, Teladoc, they're almost exactly the same. They line up almost dollar for, um, you know, uh, as it turns out for a perspective of return. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, why is that happening? These are both COVID stuff, meaning like demand would surge on COVID. And then when there's less COVID, it recedes. And I'm not convinced that Peloton is going to be successful um, in the long term post-COVID. And, you know, why? Um, they're just going to be really challenged. The ex exercise equipment market is pretty broad. It's a bike with an iPad on it. It has a it has a large, passionate fan base. But I believe last quarter, they didn't add any net subscriptions. I think it was some ridiculous number. Like in the quarter, they added 50 subscriptions after their you know cancellations. It was something ridiculously low. Um, in Teladoc, how many people are going to use continue to use Teladoc in the short term for medical needs now that they go back to the, it's just going to be significantly less. Um, yeah, that, that's a great point. And I'm in the uh, healthcare field and Teladoc really helped reshape how we see patients. And I think that's a business model that's not going away. But to your point, in the height of COVID, Teladoc was at $292. Uh, today it's at $27.03, just looking at the latest chart. So I do see moving forward where there's still a purpose for that. Because instead of going away to an emergency room, might be far away uh, from your uh, physician on vacation, and that's no reason to cancel a doctor's appointment. So it's definitely going to have a need, but it sounds like it's going to be more of a niche. So with that, with what you're seeing in the market, this is just an opinion from Mike. Do you agree with what the Fed is doing or do you disagree with it? And how would you have approached it? Because uh, that part could be extremely confusing to a lot of people on why the Fed continues to uh, increase interest rates. Well, you know, some of the timing here could have been better. Um, mm -hmm. When the Fed delayed raising uh, rates initially, we were in the middle of the Omicron phase. It's kind of like the phase of COVID that wasn't. I'm sure there were plenty of people impacted by that, but it didn't have uh, the same impact as kind of the original covid uh, and then the Delta variant. Um, so things quickly returned back to normal at a rapid rate, even as Omicron was unfolding. 
I think the Fed, again, paused on raising rates um, because we didn't know what that was going to look like. So they ended up being behind the curve. They said, you know, no inflation this year, no need to raise rates at the start of the year. Um, and then, you know, have had to completely reverse course. So it's hard to say that they've been right. But, you know, given the information they had at the time, it, it's hard to say if I would have really done anything different. Um, when you looked at how this was unfolding, how it had been like, you know, on and off lockdowns of varying degrees for close to two years, you know, really hard to say that when you saw this third wave coming um, that, you know, I could have done something. But I, I think now you're seeing really too much fear about rates continuing to go higher here. I, I don't think we're going to have rate increases going into next year. I think they're going to have to pause sooner than later. I think we probably have at least another 75 basis points, 0.75% in normal terms, or or 1% more of increase, and then that's it. And I think that's priced into the mortgage market. You know, you're going to see mortgage rates jump from 3 to now 7-ish percent, um, and all the rate hikes aren't even done. Um, so... Mike, you bring up a great point, and that reminds me, you posted something very interesting on LinkedIn, and that was a picture of a house in 2021, right next to it was another house in 2022, and it said something to the essence of, if you purchased this exact same house a year ago, your mortgage would be, let's just use uh, $2,000. You purchase that exact same house today, your mortgage rate and it did the exact math, so I'm just uh, paraphrasing here, the mortgage would be roughly around $4,500. I thought that was very impactful for people trying to understand how does the, in, the increase in interest rates impact me. So could you talk a little bit more about yeah. that? Yeah, simply put, the doubling of the rate of the 30-year mortgage has increased the dollar-for-dollar dollar monthly payment by about 50%. So that $500,000 home, is going to cost you 50% more on a monthly payment basis than it did a year ago. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And, and you know, but one, one trend we've seen so far is that people, the, the home buying hasn't really stopped. The primary issue is still supply, right? Still not enough supply. And instead of um, buying the $500,000 house, they move further outside the city. People are uh, sacrificing square feet as well as proximity to urban areas and still buying homes. At, at this phase, right? Yep. So, because most Americans, whether it's a car or a home, are not buying something based on its ticker, ticket price. They're buying it based on what's it going to cost them a month. And the monthly payment issue is just driving people further outside the cities, um, which, given most of us are probably going into the office two, three days a week max, probably is more feasible than, you know, feeling like you needed to live within 30 minutes of the office. Uh, if you had to go in five days a week. Wow. Great, great feedback uh, in regards to how this correlates with our daily lives, what the increase in interest rate means for the audience, anyone else living in this country. One of the things I noticed with inflation is that it started with you go in, you buy a slice of pizza that used to be $1.75. Now that pizza is roughly around $3. And it just kept and this is a slice. Uh, it just keeps increasing and increasing, okay? So it starts off on the food side of things first. And then with inflation, you see it start being tied into the mortgage interest rates. So now it's impacting uh, housing. What do you see the next phase that it will impact is that it hasn't really hit us yet 
And I know this is kind of putting you on the spot, so you might not have that answer. But it's funny because when I went shopping, I slowly but surely started seeing these increases in just food prices. Then it was gas. And now it's uh, spilling over into the mortgage market. What do you see uh, inflation hitting next? You know, I think people are going to be surprised as it either flattens out or moves down. Okay. The, the housing thing is only impactful for people buying today. And, and the secret sauce of that is, is that even if you're buying today at a 7% rate, rates go down in three years, they move down to 5.5%, you refinance, right? And now you've dropped your pl- payment by 20-20%. So you can't forget about the alchemy, alchemy of kind of American finance and, and all this, that when rates tick lower, refis will tick up. So I think people would be surprised uh, about some of the decline in prices. You mentioned gas prices. They've rolled over quite a bit. You know, I paid $3.14 last week and I was pretty jazzed about it. We're going to go into the holiday season. This could be one of the first holiday seasons in years where there are legitimate Black Friday sales because of inventory issues. We saw the under ordering of inventories due to supply constraints and COVID. Um, We could be on the other end of this where people order too much of stuff because they're afraid of running short. You actually saw this impact Walmart and Target significantly. They overordered patio furniture uh, and outdoor supplies uh, too much that they had to put on tremendous sales. And at the end of the day, that's deflationary, right? So if you were buying patio furniture this summer, it was probably the best time in years to do so. It was so bad that they specifically called it out on our conference calls. Wow. And uh, for the untangling audience, that is great advice to basically mark uh, Black Friday on your calendar, uh, because Black Friday is something I always used to avoid. But to your point, and I've seen a lot of this in the news, is a lot of companies literally have to get rid of inventory uh, for pennies on the dollar because they got to get ready for 2023. Yeah. And, and we might live in a bifurcated world. It, Walmart was saying their best seller this year or this past quarter was like this $12 flannel shirt they were selling. That's not deflationary. I don't know what is. But certain brands will still maintain pricing power. I believe, at least as, we, as this is recorded, it's a name we do not own. But Lululemon seems to not uh, have any problem charging the prices that they do and maintaining demand. So I think we'll live in a bifurcated world. Um, a name we recently added to on this theme, again, not a recommendation for you to buy personally, um, but we recently added to McDonald's. If the consumer gets weaker, um, we would expect people to trade down. No TGI Fridays or the Texas Roadhouse, you trade down to a value meal. Um, what's interesting about McDonald's compared to the Walmarts of the world that would be another trade down for consumers is that McDonald's over the last decade has really worked on automation. Any new McDonald's you go into, it's all iPads and a few people out back compared to Walmart, which still relies heavily on labor. So if they're hiring people, low-wage people, um, and they have to boost wages from 15 to $20 an hour, that's still a huge increase in, in wages. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Uh, I was actually traveling. I forget uh, when it was. And you know McDonald's originated here in the state of Illinois. There's arguments in regards to California. But if you ever watch the movie The Founder, they explain the whole story behind it. But I was traveling, and I went into a, Madon- a McDonald's, in exactly what you said, I actually took pictures of this because I've never seen anything like it. It looked like a big iPad where you order your stuff. Everything was, the technology was through the roof in regards to how inviting it was. 
And I took a picture because it was literally like stepping into the future. They had two people working there. The rest was all automation. I couldn't believe it. And McDonald's has always been a great stock to own uh, because it does good in a regular environment. It does good in an inflationary environment. So I truly believe that is one of the best stocks money can buy. But you hit on a key point where they're still looking for ways to continue to cut costs. They will take a hit in regards to exiting out of Russia, which really left them no choice. They had to make that decision, uh, but always trying to improve, always trying to get better. And the one misconception people have about McDonald's is I would say McDonald's is probably one of the best technology companies in the world. And nobody associates them with uh, technology. You bring up a great point, Mike. Yeah. And I think when you talk about um, the impact in Russia, I'd say all that's already, right? You know, it's already happened. The stocks are already absorbed that bad news. You know, you look on a one-year basis, it's down 3%. Year to date, it's down 10%. You know, the impact of, of Russia largely is already baked into the stock, in my opinion. Great stuff. So, Mike, we're going to transition a little, okay? You and I, we're on different sides of the aisle. Your mind might have changed today, but I'm a big fan of crypto. You've expressed where you're not such a big fan of Chris, uh, uh, crypto. Would that be a fair assessment? Fair assessment. Okay. So why aren't you? And it's funny. I will look. I will read your LinkedIn post. I I can't stop laughing. Uh, sometimes I'll even say I know what I'm talking about here. I don't feel like Mike does. Why? Your thoughts in regards to your current on crypto? Well, I mean, you know, I, I've bought crypto in the past. I think I bought a little in like 2015 and doubled my money and then quickly sold out. So can't say I've never been, uh, never participated in it. For sure I have. Um, but, you know, in the last five years, I can't remember touching the stuff. I mean, frankly, uh, I have a pretty conservative stance on crypto. I almost <laughs> think it's un-American. I mean, it's great if you own it and it goes up as a just like I'd be happy if you bought a lottery ticket, made a bunch of money. But from a functional standpoint, it's a solution in search of a problem. And it has been. It's been created. In 1999, I could at least still buy a book on Amazon with crypto. The promise of using it for payments is still elusive since its launch, you know, over a decade ago. So it doesn't have any efficacy in payments. It's a huge tax hassle. It's mostly a currency for speculators, pirates, and criminals. That it, Every time you hear about big crypto transactions, it's in the form of a bribe. Got it. No, and, and you, you bring up a great point. But my argument to that is simply you could say the same exact thing aside from the purchasing part with cash, right? Criminals use cash, okay? There's no secret there. Fraudsters use cash to commit scams. So those two arguments uh, hold weight. But one of the things I'm seeing is like the big institutions such as Fidelity, Goldman Sachs, Charles Schwab, they've kind of dipped their toe into the crypto world. Do you see that they're heading towards the right path when it comes to the future? Why do you think the big players are not trying to get involved in this? Yeah, so just to be upfront, I use Fidelity and Schwab as my custodians for my clients. Okay. Um, but, you know, just generally speaking, I think there's an opportunity to make money in crypto by providing services. Okay. So if you're willing, to, if Fidelity, all, they're not trading Bitcoin in a fund for private clients. What they're offering is basically custody services, just like they hold on to your stock and they can charge a fee or make money off cash. So, you know, what they're doing for crypto is like, it's out there. 
if they can make money offering a service around it, then, you know, that's probably just being a smart business person. Um, I don't see them doing too much in the way of enabling it for payments, raising a fund. Now, there are investment firms, um, Grayscale, that specifically do funds and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm not convinced that institutional interest in Bitcoin is all that high. Yeah, and I think with Grayscale, uh, that was a cautionary tale because they ran into the SEC uh, where that lawsuit on uh, that stock because it's uh, how does the SEC see crypto and how Grayscale was simply positioning that. So a lot of people took a bath on uh, the Grayscale fund. And now I think it's still in litigation where people are just like, okay, if I buy Grayscale low, and they win this lawsuit, then the sky's the limit. I think it's a very risky investment. Uh, but to your point, you brought up Grayscale. So I figured I'd just uh, explain to the audience the backstory in regards to what's going on there with Grayscale. So back to uh, WinCap Financial, anything you'd like the untangling audience to know? I know one of the things that you're really, really good at and understand is the power of social media, the power of networking. Uh, so anything you'd like to share in regards to uh, WinCap Financial and your social media presence? Yeah, so I do a lot, most of my social media work for the business on LinkedIn, uh, mostly because, you know, that's where my clients are. LinkedIn is fantastic for, you know, finding out information that might be really relevant to my business. So if there's a senior executive who's changed jobs, they probably have a million dollar plus retirement account that can be rolled over. So for us, that is a great social media source to raise awareness on who we are. We don't try to spam people with work with us type uh, content. We just try to pro provide education, you know, information about the market, things of that nature. And I think that's the best form of engagement, right? Because it's the most authentic. You see so many people out there reposting some PDF from corporate that's basically a a commercial that people don't want to watch. Um, and instead, you can provide just real authentic content with information people might find valuable. So that's kind of been my strategy. I was just invited to the LinkedIn creators program. Don't know too much about it yet. But you know, according to them, I think they can, you know, help raise my profile on LinkedIn and kind of push my content out to a larger audience, which is pretty neat. Um, that, that's really, really great uh, feedback. And I would also just add to that, untangling audience if you're uh listening and let's just say with what's going on in today's economy where that might be an executive who lost a job as well because we see a lot of those articles on linkedin with coinbase the they decided to downsize and i think a lot of those uh, executives will have financial questions because there's so many rules regulations what do i do next uh, so you would be a great person to discuss that with because it's only a matter of time uh, to they land on their feet. And I think a lot of times people just simply try to target the people who have everything going great for them, which is the easy part of the business. But an executive who was recently laid off is going to be an executive. It's just going to take time. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And, you know, the most important thing we'll do for someone in that situation or really, you know, most phases of your career is, you know, this, this hypothetical executive, let's just say they're 45 and have accumulated a million dollars in a retirement account, you know, they're looking at the horizon of retirement. They have 20 years to go. How do they get there? Um, how much money will they need to live the lifestyle they want while accomplishing all these other goals, like, you know, maybe paying for a daughter's wedding, college education, 
And how do you map that out? So that first and foremost, that's what we'll do for our clients. We'll map all that out for them. And then the output for the client is a really good takeaway on the roadmap to retirement, how to get there. Um, and then for us, the big takeaway in doing that exercise is we get to get a really accurate view on what we think their risk profile should uh, in terms of, hey, what's the percentage they should have in stocks versus bonds? Core philosophy we have here is that you know near-term expenses should be kept in safe and stable assets. If you're paying for your daughter's college tuition next year, you don't want to have it in meta stock, right? You want to have that in like a money market or some short-term bond funds in order to make sure that the the asset associated with that payment doesn't drop 20% in value. Because that's the most important thing to people is like accomplishing these goals. I mean, people will tell you that, you know, of course, everyone wants to see their account with more money compared to less. But the real problem that we're trying to solve is like, hey, can you accomplish all these life goals that you have while living a comfortable life that you've worked hard for? Wow. Great, great feedback. And Mike, so what are your thoughts in regards to dividend stocks? Okay. Um, with the market where it is today, one of the things that keeps coming up is do I just simply go into dividend stocks? For example, uh, AT&T, right? AT&T. Yes, they've gone hit over the last several years, but they've consistently returned a 5 to 7% dividend return. Is that something you specialize in? Is that something you stay away from or both? Yeah, so uh, we intentionally try to stay neutral to the market on dividends. And what does that mean? You know, If the S&P pays about 1.5% in dividends, our portfolio will pay approximately the same amount in dividends. I don't try to make an explicit bet on value or growth. I just want to invest in good companies. Now, if a company like that, AT&T, can maintain its market price and crank out 5% a year, I mean, that's a fantastic investment. You know, stock market on average only returns about 8 um, so, you know, we own some higher dividend paying stocks for the last few years. One higher dividend paying stock we've owned was Gaming Leisure Property. Um, it is the uh, sole landlord for Penn Gaming and it pays investors 6%. It's a casino property. Um, it, does that lie with your ethics uh, or does that not matter is a personal question. However, a 6% payment that's probably stable and safe is very reasonable. For investors. So, you know, that's one higher um, dividend paying name we own. Another one we recently purchased. Um, well, we mentioned J-Bill for technology. That's a higher dividend paying stock. Um, recently bought Pfizer. Pfizer's not going anywhere. They pay a 3.6% dividend. Um, AbbVie, they own the market for Botox and lip fillers. They pay a 3.9% dividend. Um, so we certainly like dividend paying names and good businesses. Yeah, it's funny. AbbVie is actually located here in the beautiful state of Illinois. I know that you're in Massachusetts, but I'm very, very familiar with uh, AbbVie. I've always felt like Pfizer. Pfizer has always been a great company to invest in because they are so well diversified. Uh, for example, when COVID happened, you had Pfizer, you had uh, Moderna. They were the two big players. And people just made a lot of money on Moderna. But if you look at Moderna uh, today, it's not where it was. Whereas with Pfizer, will it increase 60 to 70 percent? No. Uh, but will it be here for another 150 years? Yes. So I've always been a huge fan of Pfizer. And uh, AbbVie is another great pharmaceutical company. And again, they're based here in Illinois. So for Mike, for anyone listening to this episode, let's just say, you know what, Mike, this sounds great. You're very knowledgeable. 
clearly you know what you're doing, but I've been with this organization for this many years. I've been with my financial advisor for this many. So why, and one of the things people always hesitate is to change. So why would they change to uh, contact you to have you assist them with their financial? Yeah, I mean, this is a relationship business and people are often afraid to make change. Um, I met a guy over the weekend at this charity event. And he was talking about how he works. He lives in Boston. He works with a guy in Pennsylvania. And he's like, I don't even like the guy. And I'm like, well, what the hell are you doing working with him? <laughs> you know, you don't have to work with me, but you, if you don't like him, you should certainly can him. Um, but, you know, that just goes to show you sometimes how hard it is to make change for people. Um, so I, it, not much else to say there, uh, except that like clients can be sticky, right? And which probably works out in their best interest because does this guy really not like his advisor or does he not like him right now because the market's down? And, and that that's really the right? If he doesn't like him because the market's down, then he should probably stay with him. Because if he joins me, if he, and he's going to get upset with me every time the market's down, he's not going to be a great client, right? Um, you want to be able to have people buy low and sell high. Uh, theoretically, that sounds easy. You know, the problem is, is that I get more calls about selling when the market's already down 20, 25% than I do when it's up 25%. As you remember, everyone was talking about buying. You know, now that it's down 25%, really, you know, everyone should be talking about what, they're, what they want to buy. But instead, people are like, what if the market crashes is a call I've gotten probably three times in the last 10 days. And I say, you looked at your statement, it's, already, Mike, it's already crashed, right? Yeah, Mike, and I give you a lot of credit because you're willing to stay in, I, I'll use a football analogy, you're willing to stay in the pocket and feel that pressure. One of my biggest pet peeves are all the YouTubers, the TikTokers, the Facebook, Instagram, uh, giving everybody financial advice. Now that the market's in the red, I'm yet to see one of those videos. I don't even know if their pages are still up. When the times were great, they had all the answers. Today, uh, the podcasts have slowed down. Uh, you go to their YouTube pages, they haven't uploaded any new videos on uh, the latest strategy. So it's almost like when you need them most, uh, that's when they disappear. So I definitely give you credit for staying in the pocket, facing the music. And I think that's another reason why people who are serious about making money and maintaining money uh, should definitely reach out to you. Before you go, I know your time is very valuable. With the midterms looming, what are your thoughts on the midterm impacting investing uh, for the untangling audience out there. Yeah. And I'll send you a chart that you can probably post with your podcast potentially, but almost every midterm election year, there's been a correction going back to 1962. And the 12 months following that correction in a midterm year have always been positive. Now, is this some kind of, you know, statistical coincidence or is there a rationale for it that we might believe it will happen again? Well, you know, in my view, there is a rationale is that having an election makes people nervous. And if you're nervous uh, about the future, you're going to pay less for it. If you had a business that you had a high confidence in that would make 100 grand a year, you'll pay more for that than a business that would pay between 75 and 125 a year because you're going to pay for that certainty. Until the elections pass or until it's closer to them passing, which we're on that precipice now, you know, that risk is going to remain in the market. And it eventually, it effectively evaporates, you know, post-November. If you go back to 2018, you know, what was the spooky thing in 2018 where the market dipped that people forget about? Trump was threatening to fire the Fed. We were in the heat of the Chinese trade war and there was a midterm election. 
You go back to 2014, what was happening? Uh, you had the first invasion of Ukraine. You had uh, Obamacare referendum, and you had a midterm election. And, you know, I think at that point, Tea Party was still thriving. Um, so every four years during these midterm election cycles, the market tends to get the most spooked, but it's recovered um, on average, um, you know, higher than the typical market return during all the 12 months following these corrections in midterm election. Great, great feedback. Mike, I can't thank you enough for your time. For those listening, how can they contact you? Uh, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's Instagram, whether it's a toll-free 800 number, a website, how yeah. can they get in contact with you uh, in regards to what we just discussed? Yeah, they can go to wincapfinancial.com or they can look me up on LinkedIn, which is Michael Collins. And if you type in CFA afterwards, I'm probably going to be the first one to show up. Great stuff, Mike. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. We will stay in contact. And I have a feeling I'm going to be bringing you back for a third uh, interview as well. And just to let you know, out of all the episodes that we've done, and we're well over 1,100 downloads, you hold the record for the most downloaded episodes on Untangling. So you can add that to your accomplishments as well. Always a pleasure and can't thank you enough for your time. Thanks, Charles. Have a good one. Cash. Cool. That's what I need.